A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Garden Better, your gardens and outdoor lifestyle podcast from Better Homes and Gardens magazine. I'm Adam Woodhams, and with me is Jenny Dillon. Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm fantastic, thanks. And what are we going to talk about today, Adam? Well, Jen, I want to talk about those fantastic garden plants, the bromeliads. Can we have a chat about them? Yeah, they're fantastic. And then, why don't we move on to a little bit of a look at art in the garden? Yeah, why not? I'm going to have a chat with a sculptor about garden art and where they get their inspiration and how they make that from Broadcroft Design. Fantastic. And and then don't forget, after that, we'll be talking to Milton Black about gardening by the moon. Of course. Mm. Wouldn't be an episode without Milton. No, there wouldn't. So what can you tell us about bromeliads? Well, you know, I reckon they, they are one of the most useful, but at the moment, very, very pigeonholed type of plants. You know, they tend to they tend to get seen often as almost a novelty plant at the moment. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would actually. They're not really sort of taken seriously, but yeah, you can have a lot of fun with them. Well, that's the reality, that that you can use them in some fantastic ways in design. They're, they're really great because of their, their foliage patterns. Mm. They, they have that Stunning. You know, prehistoric look. But funnily enough, they look really prehistoric, right? They look mm-hmm. like something straight out of dinosaur era. On an evolutionary scale, they're actually only a relatively recent evolved type of plant. But you would have thought that they were one of these things that they call a dinosaur plant, but no, they're not. They're a relatively recent Well, that's recent interesting one. because they're, they're from what they used to call the New World, South America. Mm, mm. Mm. Well, that's yeah, that's exactly right. They and that is where they originate from. Is that whole that whole band of the Americas through from South America into the lower end, of the warmer warmer parts of um, North America. Mm-hmm. And there is apparently only one from another continent, which is somewhere in Africa, Africa I believe, that comes yeah. from. Yeah, mm. and they, it's sort of evidence of they think of you know continental drift and that whole that whole idea that that may have happened, or it could have been Might carried have... across by a bird. Oh, so strange albatrosses can fly long distances. Yes, mm. yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But they are a, they're a fantastic architectural plant and I think the diversity within the species or within the group is is underestimated for what they can do because they they tend to be a little bit pigeonholed. People think, oh yeah, dry shade in a warmish garden, that's where I can stick some bromeliads. But they are useful for a lot more than that and many of them flower beautifully. They have you know, I, I, and they last for ages and ages. But sadly, they only flower once, don't they? Ah, uh, not all of them. Some of them do have repeat flowering, but some of them, yes, they flower once. But then they put pups out. Yes. So that's when that's when yes. it goes from a single plant to being a clump of plants. So, so you, pretty, those yeah, little can, pups. And, but those flowers, I mean, they're just totally alien. They're really bizarre in their mm. look. Some of them are just quite amazing. But uh, there are nearly 3,000 species. Now, that's the, the thing that I found interesting when I was doing a little bit of research into this segment. Yes, I do research occasionally, <laughs> Jen, into our segments. <laughs> I'm not this incredible font of knowledge that just happens to know all of these wonderful trivial facts. Well, I, I do research too. I check my book. <laughs> Books, I've heard of them. Oh, <laughs> wonderful things. <laughs> but 3,000 species is, is in fact, quite amazing. That's, that's... But they do range from 
from such a large, you know, you've got your big fat leafed ones and then you go all the way down to the little air plants, the Tillandsias. Yeah, the tiny little Tillandsias. Yeah. you've got your Spanish moss. They're all the same family. Yeah, they're all, all within the same group. But the the smallest are only about three centimetres in size. Mm. And then you get some giants that are, you know, three and four metres wide with flower spikes that are up to 10 metres high. So you're talking, you know, that's that's a pretty enormous range. That's like, that's like saying they go from a shrub to a towering tree. Mm. The difference is enormous. Now, I reckon one of the probably the greatest myths about Broms, as we like to call them because we're friends with them, um, <laughs> Broms is that they are shade lovers, that they're all shade lovers. But the fact is that there's a lot will grow in it's, full sun yeah. as well, um, particularly uh, some of the some of the bigger forms and there's some very, very colourful forms um, like the Alcanteras. They're, they're amazing when you, once you get them out in full sun. We have one in a, a big tub beside our swimming pool. So yeah. it, it gets sun virtually from sunrise to sunset. The leaves are probably nearly a metre long. They're this sort of silvery green on top and a, a burgundy purplish color underneath looks absolutely amazing and i do nothing to it it just all it gets is is rainfall yep um and and loads and loads and loads of sunlight and then once a year i give it a little bit of a feed so you know the versatility is there there's certainly not just a you know a shady garden plant for you know i've got this dry shade underneath a tree what i'm going to stick there i can put some broms in that's what they're very useful for um, but that diversity is just incredible. And many of them are epiphytes. They actually don't grow in soil. And, and naturally in, in parts of, of South America, they actually grow on trees. And you can actually, if you want to, grow your bromeliads in a tree at home. Mm, they, they do They do very well like that. They develop these roots that let them hold onto the so, tree. Well, they're gripping, aren't they? Yeah, without. The, I think they, they call them holdfast roots. Yes. Yeah. So they're not actually parasitic because that's the mistake people make. They think, oh, no, it's going to dig into my tree and do no, some harm. But they're not. All they're doing is just holding, holding on. on. Yeah. yeah. But there are others also that do like a little bit of soil, but they have to be very, very well drained. That's that's the big thing. Regardless of virtually all of these these um, species and varieties, you can grow in a growing media of some sort, but it has to have exceptional drainage. Well, it's, I think mainly the media is there to give them support, isn't it? That That's what it's all about because most of them are, are in fact getting their moisture through other sources, the vast majority of them. So mm. that's the, with the, the tillandsias that are often called the air plants. They have little modified scales on the leaves mm. that trap um, airborne moisture. And then the other varieties or the other groups are, are often described as the tank bromeliads and they actually have a central core that... Yeah. that captures a lot of water and holds that water and no that little container of water will not breed mozzies that's what that's really one, that's one of the other myths they don't I've, they don't end well, up with mozzies i've in seen them. a few mozzies and they didn't get that message yeah well i've got a lot of broms around my place and um, admittedly they haven't gone in the garden yet because we don't really have a garden yet but they're in my shade house and my other growing spots and and we haven't had any mozzie problems from them you, you i find frogs sometimes yes tree frogs in yes them. so maybe the tree frogs the tree frogs Eating the mozzies, the mozzies. Yes, yeah, yeah. because I've I I was given a whole bunch of them actually years ago by a colleague of mine, and um, yeah, I, they were mozzies. But what I did is tiny, tiny, tiny drop of oil at the top of the wa- on the water, and that's 
changes the whole surface. Yeah, and it can just be a vegetable. It just oil. means that yeah, the mozzies just, can't land and lay yeah, their eggs. Yeah, they can't. They can't basically do anything with it. Yeah, mm. but basically the the plants then take that water that's in the tank and it drops down through the plant and they they've been modified so they mm. can absorb it through the base. So it's very very clever. There, what it comes down to is they've got a lot of really smart adaptations for surviving in the environments they normally grow in and. Often that is making making the most of that uh, naturally available water, but some of the varieties that are tree born, in fact, if they or or some of them will grow on rocks again. I was just, just going to suggest yeah. perfect for a shady rock garden. Yeah, um, they will fall onto the ground and quite happily develop a completely different sort of root into the soil. Mm-hmm. But again. They like to be on top of the soil. So if you think, if you, if you were to put a brom in the garden, you could put it on top of your mulch and it would grow quite well. But mm. if you tried to dig it into the garden, chances are it's going to in fact die. So yes. they like to have that really, really good free drainage. So rockeries or, or areas, you know, you could create rock pockets, fill them up with a, a good quality horticultural bark or very free draining mm-hmm. material and you could plonk them onto that and they'll take off quite well. So you can do some fantastic things in the gardens with them. You know, they just because you've got your two different textures, haven't you? And the colours are just so stunning. Well, that's there are incredible foliage colours that literally every colour of the rainbow. So, you know, pinks, purples, almost blues in some of the flowers that come mm. out as well. Um, stripes and wiggles and all sorts of amazing. You look at some of the leaves and you would think that they've been they've been printed. They're just so spectacular in their in their foliage designs, and some of them are even towards the core of the plant where the flower with those tank bromeliads where mm. the flower arises from the centre of that tank, um, they'll actually have colour changes on the edges of those leaves as they start developing the flowers. So there's amazing stuff there. Very useful garden plant. And have you ever eaten one? I have. I have. And I think a lot of people have. <laughs> I think people don't realise that when they have their classic Hawaiian pizza, that they're, thinking about chow- <laughs> they're chowing down on a bromeliad because the, the pineapple is in fact a bromeliad. And yes. it's, it's if anyone's ever seen one, or have, have a look up online, you know, what a pineapple plant looks like in flower and they're they're almost comical. It looks like somebody's made it up. <laughs> what it does, it looks like a cartoon character with the hair sticking up like spikes, like a naughty child or something, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And and pineapples are surprisingly easy to grow at home. That um, You sometimes see them sold as a bit of a novelty plant and you can grow them in pots quite well. But being in the subtropics, it's easy for us to, to grow them. And I, in fact, have a, a raised planting mound with citrus on top. And then around the outside, I have pineapples growing. Fantastic. So, <laughs> so we're going to have fruit salad just happening right there. Right there. <laughs> That's wonderful. But give the Broms a look because they're uh, certainly worthwhile, very useful from a design perspective, but also they can be fantastic problem solvers. Yes. We're going to talk about art in the garden. Good. Plenty of art in the garden. I think plants make wonderful art features. <laughs> I've got an art thing happening right now. I've got a frangipani bear of leaves. It's very, very sculptural. And the clematis is crawling all over it, loving it. Well, that's I've heard people say you paint your garden with plants. Yeah. That, that That's one of the ways you can apply your own sort of art. But what about the other art, the hardware sort of art, the, the physical hardware. objects, mm-hmm. the big things you can put into your garden? It might, be, it might be a beautiful pot, a decorative ornamental pot. One can describe that as being functional art in the garden. Yeah, if it's functional. I, I kind of draw the lines at the line at uh, lines on pedestals. <laughs> I remember once reading a quote from a guy that worked for the tax office and he said, we always knew we were onto a 
good one when we'd arrive and there were two lions at oh the gate. Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, what does that say? <laughs> but there's been some fascinating uh, choices over the years, hasn't there? I, I particularly love the, um, the whole concept of the folly. You know, that was one of the classics going back into as the, the grand English gardens yes. developed, the, the whole concept of the folly, which was to build particularly a ruin. They would spend enormous amounts of money and, and take years to build something that looked like a ruined cathedral or yeah. a ruined windmill or something like that. But it's, it's not just the concept of a folly. It's the actual word itself. It just sounds so wonderful. It does. Folly. It's, it's great. It, it just the, the fact that, yes, it just says it all, doesn't it, mm. that it was a folly. I, I, one of my favourite examples, and, and folks could look this one up on the internet and you'll just laugh, it's impossible not to, is the famous Dunmore Pineapple in Scotland. It's a fantastic folly. It's just absolutely brilliant. I'll have to check that one out. <laughs> it's certainly one of my faves. But what about what about some of those other ones that, you know, like garden gnomes? <laughs> no. <laughs> don't you think they're art? They have their own place, don't they? I mean, they, they, they are very old. They're ancient. They go back to Roman times, the whole idea of the of the garden gnome. They, they were little garden protectors I... back then and they often came with some very, very stern and vulgar warnings about what would happen to you if you trespassed into the garden. You know, Adam, I'd much rather bring back the Roman orgy than the Roman gnome. <laughs> Well, they do say that the gnome has a certain shape these days with that little hat and everything. That, yeah. That's that's one of the reasons for its derivation and everything. But do do we think we could call the garden gnome some sort of garden art? You could. You could. But I wouldn't. <laughs> but you wouldn't. I could see that one coming a mile off. What about some modern garden art? Like, you know, there, we seem to be sort of – culturally appropriating a lot of different styles, don't we, you know? I mean, you know, people have a resort-style garden and they have a Balinese-style garden mm. and then straight away they start adding motifs that fit with that. And, you know, we often see beautiful carved stone frogs, for instance. I used to have a wonderful um, a soft stone frog that had a little spout water mouth and it was wonderful as a water feature and that was a, mm. it was very Asian influenced and I had that in a pot and it looked, looked great. But you also get some other influences slipping in there. It's interesting to see this cultural appropriation. Are you, are you leading me somewhere, Adam? I'm leading you somewhere because I know there's something you don't like in the garden, Jen. I don't like, <laughs> I don't like Buddhist statues in the garden. <laughs> I just think that it's really inappropriate. It's not culturally uh, cultural appropriation. It's religious appropriation because it, it's supposed to be something that you worship and people don't worship a Buddha. They just put it there for decoration. I just think it's really rude. It, it it's, is interesting how there are other, you know, religious and cultural motifs that we wouldn't dare put into the garden. But for some reason, it's... This Zen thing, you know, is it is it people think that Buddhists are more relaxed and they're not going to get worked up about us nicking a a, a facsimile no, of Buddha I, to stick just, in the garden? I just think that somewhere somewhere in the world, there's a little guy who came up with an idea. Let's make a hundred thousand of these and sell them because <laughs> people will think it's cute. It's a commercial thing. It's got nothing to do with religion or art. Well, sorry, I, I'm getting cranky here. I I, I know 
that I know what you're going to say, but we do actually have a little Buddha. And do you garden. pray? And do you put a bit of incense? No. He was a gift to us, to in fact, to our daughter quite, oh, okay. a, quite a number of years ago. So that little Buddha has moved house with us a few times, and yeah. it's a it's a little boy Buddha with his hands, and it's very cute, and it still stays in the garden. Yeah, my boyfriend's got two on his shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean to say I'm going to change my mind, though. <laughs> I do remember somebody who became quite obsessed with gnomes, but found one that they particularly liked, and then bought half a dozen of them and just put them in like a conga line in their front garden. Gnomes, yeah, gnomes. Oh, okay. we're back to gnomes. I thought okay. it was safer territory than Buddhists. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but look, there is some real garden art out there, and we're not talking not talking prefabricated fiberglass gnomes and Buddhas and all of that sort of stuff. There is. Oh, some you're fantas- going to talk about um, tire swans, aren't you? <laughs> tire swans, that's DIY garden art. <laughs> no, I want to talk about some serious garden art because there's a fantastic local company called Broadcroft Design who makes some wonderful, wonderful iron and metal oh. uh, sculptures and plant holders and things like that. And I am going to have a chat with Natalia from Broadcroft Design. She's fantastic. I've met her once and her, her stuff is fabulous and she's such a lovely person as well. In regional Queensland, there's an awesome family-run metalwork business called Broadcroft Design, and I caught up with Natalia, their principal designer and metalworker at the Noosa Botanic Gardens Plant Fair. Natalia, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, tell us a little about Broadcroft Design. Broadcroft Design came from, well, we're actually Broadhead, our last name. And I didn't think that was as glamorous. And I married an Englishman and he always told me about Crofts and how it's this small, sustainable farm. So we morphed both of the names together because our main passion has been to work and create and be at home in Kinkin. So that's where the Croft comes from and that's where the sort of name came from. And we've met in London building theatre and television sets. I was a florist before I was a welder, so it just kind of morphed into something that it is now and we were young enough at the time when we started to have a go and we've been going for eight years now. That's interesting. So the floristry, was that part of your inspiration for getting into the industry? Because I've noticed there is distinct floral connections with a lot of your designs. Yeah, I think it's also just because, you know, people have a lot of trouble with keeping a garden with the, you know, the the weather that we have Mm. and the more that the climate is sort of changing. And this way, I suppose, in my own take on it, gives you that ability to have flowers in the garden that are everlasting to some extent, that don't require water, but still give you that sense of nature within nature. Mm. Actually, that's a good opportunity because podcasts aren't exactly a visual medium. Try and describe a couple of your signature type of pieces to the folks out there. I have always loved steel because it can look so delicate, but it's so strong. And I think... That's probably one of the key things with our style. Um, People can spot it once they know a Broadcroft design. They spot it because of the the quality of it and the simplicity of it. I think our things have quite a bold feel to them, but they're delicate at the same time. So it's just this playing around with with what the metal does and and how it performs within a space as well, I think. Mm. I hope that's described it well. 
It does. It's And it's interesting too because there's true art value in the work. That's what I really like. It's not just simply here's a piece to plonk in the garden. And we were talking about art and garden art earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. One of the key things about art is that it means different things to different people. And Absolutely. I, I've watched people at the garden shows when you've, you've had big displays of your work up and yeah. there's, there's one piece that I would call your signature piece. Now I look at it and I see a beautiful flower bud opening and it's designed as a planter to contain yes. plants and yeah. and that's what i see yet i see other people look at it and go oh it's a wonderful water drop and yeah, other people yeah. say oh, it's a are you talking drop. about the yeah. bud planter yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that to me is what categorizes it as being garden art rather than simply a planter yeah definitely it took me a long time to actually acknowledge that we are artists mm. i know that might sound really weird but i've just always wanted to just make stuff like that's and I don't label myself as an artist I just want to be able to use my hands and be creative and just make things the bud planner actually came from doing a good friend of mine has an organic garlic farm and I went through a whole season of unpeeling it and making it go into the storing part and I would sit there in a circle of all these other people Jess was just a bubby peeling garlic as it's coming out of the earth and that's where that shape came from I wanted something that was really voluptuous and fat to the ground but also look so delicate and like it's sort of got movement to it so the bud is a garlic bulb yeah and that's the beauty of it because as you said people think of sheet steel and they think of it as being a very harsh material yeah. but you managed to translate that into something that's very beautiful and soft and organic it has flowing feminine lines you know it, it has distinctly beautiful patterns yeah. and you don't expect that from metal and then when you add to that the quality of your welding obviously you laser cut the materials it's you. laser cut and then we get everything that has to be rolled rolled and then we produce it either Duncan or myself so everything's touched by our hands we're not mass produced I don't see the point I grew up in the rag trade so I even put little nicks so when I have to match something up like a sleeve on a shirt from my childhood experiences and I've utilized that into the material you know exactly the right place I know where I'm, I'm lining yeah, things wow. up so when people ask me how long it takes to make something you know it's not as simple as the time on a bench in my shed it's all of the process of my life. It's taken this long, 46 years, to get the confidence and to feel like I can use what I have within me, if that makes any sense. So I, fi I find it, you know, I might be able to make something in 15, 20 minutes, but it's not that because it's taken so much more to get to that point to be able to do it. This is my life. It's, it's everything that we do. Realistically, a piece, as you said, it might only take you 15 minutes or half an hour to physically make it. Yes but it's been literally years in creation yeah. because it's yeah. you've come up with the design concept, you've finessed that, I imagine your sketch out designs. Yeah, I generally do the sketching and then Duncan works with AutoCAD drafting, so he makes it into a working drawing and then that's what we utilize to cut the laser cut pieces. And then do you find sometimes you think, yep, that's great, you look, but then when you actually assemble it, it doesn't quite yeah. translate through the, what you were trying to say? Does um, that ever happen? Often it's more that you're not aware of what will happen when you put it together and then there are moments when you kind of go oh wow that's really cool that's worked even better than I thought and then other times you might have to tweak it a little bit because it's more congested than you thought. Mm. Um, the other thing that often happens too is that the centre of a rock rose for example I might use in a, a lotus sculpture as the centre stamens and then all of a sudden the waratahs are created. It, it's yeah. this running 
thing, you know, that just constantly evolves. It's not like we go, okay, well, we need a new flower. What are we going to do? Mm. It just happens in the process of making something else. I should explain too for our listeners that the range is from freestanding artworks to planters of various sizes yeah. to hanging planters, um, but also beautiful little artworks from tiny little dragonflies and bees to gorgeous uh, artistic representations of flowers and then one I hadn't seen before that I absolutely love that I saw today is your bird's nest yeah. <laughs> with the nest is strung together with springs that have been salvaged from reclaimed mattresses yes, I believe which that's is right. just fantastic stuff. Yeah that it's um I have a friend who is a local artist as well so she makes the eggs on the wheel for me and I, I just like it together you know sometimes things metal's a very tactile thing people want to touch it and with the eggs in it it just really adds to that sort of thing now you guys are very hands-on and very family there's Duncan your partner and your daughter Jess running around all over the place you guys man your stand yourselves you set up you pack away you travel all over the place to the different shows Is that important to you to stay so directly engaged with your product? I think the biggest reason why we are so hands-on in the sense of travelling the distances that we do is because we are both fairly what I call old school. I'm still learning with social media. I know everybody says this is what you have to have to be able to be successful. But for me, it's something that people have to see. And it's really hard to project that honestly through images. I want them to see it for what it is as opposed to how I zhuzh up a picture. Mm. I try to be really honest with how our things look in imagery. So for me, it's more about the fact that it's all I know is to be there to engage with people. And from my experience and Duncan's experience, most of the time it's about people wanting to meet the maker. There's a real strong current of people wanting something handmade that's Australian, that's created beautifully and that they can meet the person who makes it. Yes, I was going to say that. I think in this day and age where people do so much online that to meet the maker, as you said, is becoming increasingly important. That direct contact, you know, understanding where people are coming from. There's a real uplifting point when you're at a show that's a handmade show and people are appreciative and they want to chat with you and they want to discuss things. And it, it, it makes it worthwhile. It makes it more... I still remember everybody that I've sold something to. Duncan, he he flips out. (laughs) Now, finally, do you have a couple of quick tips for people if they're looking for some garden art themselves? What should they be looking for? Or is it more to look inside their heart for what they really want? It's a good question. I would start by not buying a Chinese product. By local, by handmade, you reckon? That's what I reckon, yeah. And I think also, you know, if it's something that has a form and function to it and you can see the quality in it, then it will be timeless. And and it doesn't matter realistically if nobody else likes it, but if, if you naturally have an instinct to kind of gravitate to a product, then I would get it and, you know, make it work. Well, thank you, Natalia. Pleasure. I love your work, absolutely love your work. And if folks out there want to see exactly what it is that Broadcroft Design do, then head to Broadcroft croftdesign.com or look them up on Instagram. That's it. Gardening by the Moon with Milton Black. Hi Milton, how are you? Very well, Jan, and it uh, looks as though we could be in for an interesting sort of a couple of weeks for gardening, oh, actually. Good, good. Because uh, 
the full moon comes up in Taurus, which is a fertile sign, you, you find that if you plant on a full moon, most of the plants seem to wither or, or something happens to them and they don't really come out nicely. So on the full moon, no planting. Now, the moon actually enters on Wednesday in Gemini, which is a non-fertile sign, but it doesn't enter there till about 6.46 in the afternoon. So what you do is just look at your garden and prepare what you want to do. And also the same on the 14th and the 15th. Now, this is an excellent time for those that are putting in lawns or perhaps uh, wanting to prepare a, a garden bed. So you should do that on the 13th, 14th, the 15th, but no actual planting on those days, just water if it requires water if there's no rain. But the moon will actually enter Cancer on Saturday the 16th and on um, Sunday the 17th, the moon's in Cancer, very, very fertile signs. What a fantastic days or two-day period to plant your below-ground crops. So this is where you can put in your uh, radishes, uh, your um, uh, potatoes still, if you want to put potatoes in at this stage, and anything that grows below your garlic, fabulous days on the uh, 16th and the 17th. Now, all below ground crops on those days. Don't fertilise on those days because it's it's fertile in the, in the sun sign itself. So you don't right. need to fertilise on those days. Okay. Yep. Now, the moon actually enters on the 18th into Leo and it's in Leo from the 18th, the 19th up to the last quarter before it moves into Virgo on the 20th. So those are definitely preparation days. Now you can prepare on those. So no planting, just prepare all your maintenance jobs that you've got to do yeah. uh, for the remaining part of uh, the month or up until the, the 24th. So if you still get your garden bed there and uh, you're getting ready to put compost around it and crushed up egg cells and things like this, which help the garden, yes. your last quarter of the moon comes in on Wednesday the 20th. So from the 20th, running right through to the 24th, yeah. definitely no planting, but you can do some heavy pruning. Yep. You can clean up your garden. Now, if you want to do your fertilizing, your heavy fertilizing, you can do it on the um, period from the 20th right through to the 24th. Excellent for fertilization. Don't forget your vinegar, which we yes. talk about every uh, time. Mix it with water, one part to, uh, to uh, five liters, so you could a good dose of uh, diluted white vinegar. Pour it over your garden. Get rid of all the insects and, and the bugs and things like that. But it's also good for putting your dynamic lifters, your sea sole, anything at all which you want to do from the 20th running right through the 24th. Oh, yeah. So it's all fertilizing, heavy pruning, garden maintenance, digging up your garden beds as well, ready to plant from the 25th onwards. So remember, no planting from the, um, really from about the 18th, running right through to the 24th. It's all garden maintenance and fertilising and anything to do with cleaning up your garden. And no burning off, remember, no fires, people, not no, this time of the year. Not this so time. Don't, don't light fires, whatever you do. You know, do you know what the planets and the moon likes to read? No. <laughs> you don't. Comet books. Comet books, of oh. course. Uh, uh. 
the MET books. Yeah, comic books. Fantastic. That's what, all about. It's what I grew yeah, up they, on, they, they of do. course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But happy gardening, everybody. Fantastic. And remember, this is this is a really, really hot period we're going into. So, water with care because uh, we're going to get a bit of rain and we have been getting the odd little shower, but we're going to get some rain. And over this period of November could be a good cycle, particularly with Mars there, trying very hard to bring us a few showers or two. I okay. hope you've got your water tanks open. See you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. Well, that was another great episode, Jen. I just want to rush out into the garden myself. Oh, I'm not stopping you. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> Adam, where can people find you? They can find me in the garden or they, oh. can, they can look me up on YouTube. Just search Adam Woodham and I'll pop up there, no problem at all, or on Instagram, of course. And if you want more garden inspiration before the next episode, you can pick up the latest copy of Better Homes and Gardens magazine at selected supermarkets and news agencies. So we'll see you next time, Jen. You bet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 